You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got a fantastic guest. I was able to catch up with Mr. Michael Perry. Now, many of you have heard of Michael. Uh, Last year, he shot the state record muzzleloader buck in the state of Alabama on public land. That was a 196-inch deer, which if you're familiar with Alabama public land, you know that those are not very common. So we get into a little bit of that hunt. Uh, talk about some of his other hunts there on this same WMA. But one of the big reasons that I wanted to have him on is Michael recently wrote a book called Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Lands. As you'll be able to tell from the interview, I think it's a fantastic resource. I love the layout, how he kind of put deer stories along with tips and tactics along the way. So yeah, we've got a great conversation today. We get into the book, we get into the ins and outs of hunting public land. Michael's sort of Uh, journey into chasing bigger and bigger deer and then we obviously hear the story of the the muzzleloader state record there in Alabama before we get to that though if you like the content that we're launching here each and every week head over and leave us a review wherever it is you access this podcast leave us a written review if you can also be sure to follow along with us on Instagram that page is up and going Now, just like I did last week, we've got a bit of a public service announcement. This is the time of year when we're all jacked up. We're excited to get out into the woods, take advantage of the natural resources that we love and enjoy. But let's remember, hunting isn't just about taking what we can get from our natural resources. Being a hunter is also about giving back. And one way that you can do that is by joining the National Deer Association. They're doing great work for conservation, as well as hunter recruitment and education. You can learn more about them at deerassociation.com. Now, I also want to give a shout out to the partners of this podcast. These guys help me keep cranking out great episodes for you each and every week. So first of all, Tacticam, title sponsor of this show. They're the makers of the best point of view cameras for outdoorsmen. Tacticam 6.0 and Solo Extreme cameras will help you capture your memories from the field so you can relive them just like you're back in the moment and so you can share them with family and friends. Their new 6.0 camera features 4K 60 frame per second footage up to 8x zoom 
a touchscreen display, and one-touch operation. And the best news, you get all of this in a compact, durable, waterproof package. They also just released the Solo Extreme camera that provides all the features you've come to love from your other Tacticam cameras, like one-touch operation, HD footage, and a sleek waterproof housing, but in a more budget-friendly option. You can learn more about the 6.0, the Solo Extreme, and Tacticam's full line of products at Tacticam.com or RevealCellCam.com. This episode is also brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth is making comfortable, durable camo without the sticker shock. This year, I'll be wearing their Tarnan pattern, uh, hunting the piney hills of the southeast and the farmland mosaic of the Midwest, and I have confidence that this pattern is going to perform flawlessly no matter the environment where I find myself. You should also take a look at their packs if you haven't already. Uh, it's probably one of the more common questions that I get, folks reaching out saying, hey, what pack are you using to get your gear in? Well, I'm using their uh, Hickory and the Lodi pack. I think the Hickory is going to be my primary pack for the year. Uh, like I've said before, I'm carrying in camera gear, a couple of sticks and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the Lodi pack is really great as well, especially if you're a minimalist kind of guy and you're not bringing in a whole bunch with you. These packs are, in my opinion, some of the best out there for the mobile hunter. And really, I think they're unbeatable at their price point. So go check them out, huntworthgear.com. And then finally, Deer Lab. They're the number one app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab helps you store, organize, and analyze your trail camera intel so that you can make data-driven decisions as you target your buck this fall. Go check out their website, DeerLab.com, to learn more about all of their awesome features and to sign up for a 30-day free trial, no credit card required. When you're ready to purchase, you can use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, and you'll get 20% off of any of their plans. Now let's get into this week's episode with Michael Perry. On the show with me today, I've got Mr. Michael Perry from Alabama. Michael, how's it going? Great. How you doing? Doing pretty good, man. Thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, I had you on... Goodness, was it last winter? And we talked about maps and the role that they play in your hunting. Um, but I had to have you back on again to talk about, man, you recently became an author. <laughs> yeah, I sure did. So. Where, did that, yeah, how, where did that come from? I, I, I knew, well, we talked a little bit off air last time. And, and you'd mentioned like, hey, this is something you're working on, thinking about putting together kind of thing. Um, you know, and so you finally pulled the trigger and you did it and I've got a copy of the book in my hand. It's really, really good. I love the format. It's kind of, uh, there are deer stories. Uh, but then with those deer stories, it's kind of like, Hey, here are the strategies and the tactics that you kind of employed to take the deer. So it's, it's a strategy book, but not maybe your typical strategy book. And I've really enjoyed it so far. Uh, man, what prompted the book? Where did that come from? Well, I guess if some people know the history of, I guess, about me a little bit. I used to write some stuff for Alabama Outdoor News Magazine when uh, they went out of business last year, but I was I really enjoyed it. It, just, it took me a – it would take me a while to do an article or something like that, but I really enjoyed it. I love the challenge of it. And then um, after I killed a few good deer, I've had people ask me about writing books, stuff like that, which you don't hear a lot of people reading books or even writing much hunt books now. But I was always interested in it. Then whenever I killed the – the state record muzzleloader there, I kind of felt like, you know, I don't want to be cocky or anything. I kind of felt like, well, I, maybe I've earned the, the ability or the right to try to write a book, maybe to try to help some people out. So I come up with a plan about how I was going to do it and talk to a guy that had, that had wrote a bunch of books and got him to help me. And his name is John uh, E. Phillips. He's wrote a bunch of stuff and, and uh, he helped me out tremendously and with the actual, the writing part. And then I got another guy named Bob Robson that was done the, 
the layout for me to, to get it through Amazon and stuff and get all the pictures kind of put in there. But yeah, I, I, I thought about it for a while, but after I killed that big buck, I said, well, maybe I can go ahead and do it. And, and I, I would feel good about it. And I wanted it to be a book. that was really relatable about, about how I killed some of the deer and the actual, what actually took place and stuff like that with them were, you know, everybody can talk about strategies, how you want to do it, but I wanted it to be like actually how I killed, you know, most of these big bucks and then what what it took to do that and then just all be relatable information with them there. Yeah, man, I, and that's the part that I've loved about this uh, book so far is, you know, I mean, on this podcast, we'll talk strategy, you know, uh, until we're blue in the face. But eventually all the strategy and all the tactics and all the things that we talk about have to all be put together into a cohesive unit, right? Like you've got to, you've got to execute the plan uh, at some point. And that's what I really love about this, about this book is you're, you're saying, Hey, here's the hunt that I was on. And, you know, here's how I executed the plan. And actually one of them, uh, I think it was the hunt for uh, crooked foot. You uh you mentioned in there that the buck had checked some uh the the ends of those uh sort of finger ridges heading down into the bottom and I right. think I think that hunt was in like ninety six or something like that and so you were hunting you were hunting thermal hubs before hunting thermal hubs was cool but we'll we'll get right. we'll come back around to that point but I, I just love the format where it's you know here's a story and then here's the things that I learned from this deer and here's what you can learn from it and you know to that piece of saying. You know, once you killed the state record muzzleloader buck in Alabama, you felt like you kind of had the credibility. You know, I think that's that's part of it, obviously. I mean, you've killed a lot of big deer, but you've been hunting public land in Alabama for a long time. Right. Right. And, and it took me a while to be successful. That's the hard part about it. You know, I was 31 whenever I killed my first decent deer, so it took me a while of trial and error. You know, I have a bunch of other you know, stories that including you know, younger bucks, whatever, but to get to that point was, you know, you gotta take steps or baby steps. Not you know, not everybody starts out killing biggins and it it took me forever and shoot, I can I can remember the when the first bike I killed was back then was like, you know, seeing a twelve point or something. If you seen some kind of horn sticking up, I mean that was it. It was a ghost, you know. So I remember that feeling right now. So it's it just it's just amazing to be able to, to try to make a book and, and relate with some of them stories and the trials and tribulations that I went through just to just to figure out deer because my dad was actually a he was a deer hunter and everybody was they were deer hunting then they didn't care anything about you know killing monsters you know some of them might have but everybody that we hung out with you know, if it had a dang horn on especially on public land I mean that was you know it was incredible to kill one so there's very few doe hunts so so it took me a long time to actually figure out ways to kill bigger deer so hopefully this book will help some people so yeah, man, I, I I think it really will. And, you know, for those who, who maybe haven't had the joy of uh, hunting public land in, in Alabama, uh, it can be a real challenge. You know, oh, so yeah. for you say it took you a long time to kind of get over the hump or get over the learning curve or whatever that was, uh, man, it, it's really, really challenging. I remember shooting my first buck on, on the, the old Boykin Wildlife Management Area. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, yeah, I remember so it, it was not famous for big deer and wasn't really famous for a lot of deer. Uh, and I, I killed a six point buck and we took it back to the check-in station. We, I had grown men who were in their, you know, forties and fifties leaning over the, the side of the truck saying, I've never seen anything that big out here. <laughs> like, yeah, man, 
yeah, them stories and, and them adventures are so, you know, just so memorable and, and crazy and cool. Just like you say, that place, that book is no longer there, right? So No, it's gone, man. It, it, I tell you that I, I grieve the loss of that place. And it, it had a special <laughs> place in my heart, not because the hunting was great, but because it's just something we always did. Well, that, that like the cookie foot story, you know, this deer come off of the Wolf Creek man deer, so we'll kind of bring it out. That man deer was one of our favorites. That was from the place where I killed my first good buck. That was the place where Kathy killed her first deer. And that's in the book, too, the story. And we've lost it. And we went through different trials of theirs. Like, they, every year you had to look at the map. And we lost, like, three or four different good places to hunt that they lost land over the years. We'd have to relearn a different place and try to figure out how to kill a deer. And then finally, just in one year, they said, well, there's no longer this. So they, that hurt our heart, too. And it's... It, you have to go through that with hunting puppet land by land getting changed or lost or they'll get some new in every now and then or if it gets cut or whatever. So that's a lot of, that's the one thing about puppet land is a lot of things, a lot of factors that plays into learning to hunt a place. Yeah, and it, it seems like we lose it a lot more often than we gain it. <laughs> yeah, we've lost a lot. So yep. Hopefully we won't be losing much more, but crap, there's always a possibility. So. Yep, yep. Well, man, I, I want to dive into one quick thing that, you know, it, it, it comes out in this book and um, it is, it's obvious for, I mean, I've, I've listened to you on a bunch of different podcasts and that kind of thing. You are not secretive about where you hunt. And that is kind of the opposite of pretty much everybody else in the, in the hunting industry. So tell me a little bit oh, about yeah. that. Like why, why, are, why aren't you as secretive maybe as some other folks are? I, mean, I catch a lot of crap with this, and that's what we'll talk about. It. It's uh, I've just I've never been shy about it because I want to. I've always wanted to promote public land because I I just think it's so unique, and there's specific areas that got certain types of deer that I've always just wanted to promote it. And I've never I've never shied away from it. And this book thing, we can talk about that a little bit. Whenever I I went over that picture on the front of the cover, uh, twenty different times, I guess changed it trying to figure out because those people like they did not want that sign on that cover for anything. <laughs> I caught, I've caught some crap for it, but there's no secret where the deer come from. So I said that, that place deserves the recognition and the deer deserves recognition to both down the cover. Cause we completely had a completely different cover to start with. Well, that deer wasn't on it. So, but, uh, anyway, I, I've always felt good about promoting it. And, you know, and like I say, I've, I've caught crap over it, but uh, it's not affected me yet because, I mean, you still got to go hunt places. You still got to put the time in. And uh, once I kill a big deer, you know, people, you can't hunt a dead deer. That deer's dead. So you, you got to you gotta get that out of your mind and, and still have to learn how to do it yourself. You know, we, we have issues with some people following us or stalking us, whatever. So, but I've not shied away from it. I want the land to be promoted because that's, I mean, it's, it's public land. It's ours. I want you to know what can be done on that land. There's, there's, to me, there's no reason to hide it. So. Yep. yep. And I, so. I tell you what, too, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Black Warrior in the book and you, mis- you mentioned Oak Mulgee in the book. And, uh-huh. um, you know, hey, if people want to get out there and hunt them, more power to you. They ain't easy. Right. They're, yeah, they're not, not easy places to hunt. Right. Well, the Black Warrior, we, we can put it for like your normal hunting club in Alabama, I guess you could you, you can have some experience with it. A normal hunting club, say a 1,600-acre hunting club, they usually kill 20-something, 30-something bucks probably on that on that hunting club. We can think of Black Warrior at 90-something thousand acres. Last season, they averaged one buck per thousand acres. So, so that, that don't sound too easy, does it? No. 
No, and 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 nobody was surprised to hear that there was a 196 inch buck running around at at Black Warrior. You know oh, what no, I mean? It's, no. it's got a reputation for for monsters. Right. Yeah, the history of here. Everybody that knows the history of it. There's been three. I know I can name three that over 200 inches kill off of it. And there's, there's another one that was 199 or something. So it's I mean, it's got the potential several over 180 over the years on the National Forest and the Mandarin. So it's it does. It has the potential, and it always has, even from the 70s. So it's not it's not a it's not a new thing. It's just it's kind of I guess for me and some other people it's getting public publicized a little bit more so but yeah it has the capabilities of course there's other places in the state that does too it just it just takes a lot of a lot of factors for that to happen so yep yep so in the book you mentioned uh and and you kind of alluded to it there just a second ago it took you a long time before you really started having success with big bucks and you know in the book you're talking about hunting one of the wmas and uh you had never seen a mature buck in that particular section of black warrior where you were hunting uh, before you shot like a 158 inch deer, uh, and that was I think you said the season like the 0506 season. What right. changed in the way that you were hunting uh, that sort of flipped the switch for you? Because you haven't gone back. You know what I'm saying? Like I mean, you've you've had a lot of success since then. So like, what what was the the? Did you have a light bulb moment? I kind of did, and I talk about it quite a bit. Is instead of paying attention to so much of that actual buck sign, this area is, is, is kind of known for it in places. You, you kill a buck and there won't be a rub or anything within a couple hundred yards or whatever. And they're just, they just, some places they do it and some places they don't, but I pay more specific attention to finding a big track, you know, around the creek crossing or some kind of drainage or something and big droppings and then trying to, because that, and try to figure out why that track is there. Once I, started doing that like the crooked foot thing that I, I found, we found that track he was he would leave that track in scrapes and then uh creek crossings and stuff like that so we knew he was there for a couple of years so it just took out it just took me a mindset of trying to figure out how he was and why he was leaving tracks in places and it kind of worked out with me wading the creek and finding the, the thermal hub area that what everybody talks about now but so it just changing that instead of just specifically hunting deer, you know, the most sign, you know, a lot of people get hung up on just the most sign. I'm going to hunt with the most sign is and bucks, a, a mature buck. He's not going to be around that most of the time, you know, maybe during the rut, but most of the time he's not around that. When he does for the rut, it's only specific times. And so you're going to have a limited time to do that. So I just changed my mindset. If I'm seeing like, I hardly ever see a doe now close enough to shoot unless it's during the rut. So, so I, I'm, I'm specifically buck hunting. I don't, I don't want to see young bucks. I think young bucks kind of hang out a little bit different areas than the mature bucks. So if I'm seeing young buck, bunch of young bucks, I'm going to move. So I just changed my mindset. I don't want. I'm looking to see a specific deer, a three and a half year old and older. So it, so just looking for big tracks and big droppings and, and big beds, and then trying to figure out how to do all that postseason. So it, so it just took me a while to figure that out because, like I said, I grew, grew up hunting deer not actually mature deer. So it, once I've made that sweet flip, it's just, it's worked out better. So, so over the last few years, I've been luckier than, you know, I guess than I probably need to be, but it, but because I've just, I don't know, it just happens a lot, but, but that, that mindset of, of what you want to hunt, you know, set goes and sticking with it. And that's what I've tried to do, what I see and what I kill. And I've been a year or two where I didn't kill a deer. So it's, it's just, you got to make that mindset and then, and flip the switch and then 
and then make your mind up that you want to hunt them that you're a deer, then change complete tactics of what I've done. So it's, and it can be boring to see it, but it, but when it happens, it happens. So. Yeah. So you, you mentioned two things there. One is the mindset piece of like, you know, you quit hunting just deer and you started hunting specific age class of deer. And then the, the other part was the sign piece where you're not, um, you're not necessarily looking for the highest concentration of deer sign. And I want to, I want to pick apart both of these. First of all, with the, with the mindset piece, what was it that led to the shift in your mindset? Was it just a, Hey, I, I, I just want to upgrade my hunting. You know, I just want to, I want to go after bigger deer or was there something that kind of tripped that trigger? Well, that, that was when my brother killed the 180, you know, was that, but that, that took a, a hard way to figure that part out, you know, putting that piece, because we didn't know there was that, we didn't even think about deer being 180 or, you know, or, or being monster bucks, trophy bucks, we just, we just never even thought about it, we wasn't raised up that way, but whenever he killed down, that's like, oh, we gotta, <laughs> gotta figure out, you know, how to do that, so it, but it took a little while to do that, but realizing that you could, could do it was the main thing, and then once I did do it, you know, I said, well, I can do it, I just got you know, just concentrate on that. Yeah, man, that, you've got the story of, of your brother's buck, that 180-inch deer uh, in the book. It One of my favorite lines, it, just, it had me cracking up, was your brother shot this deer. He got over there. He could tell it was huge. And he says, Dad, you have to come look at this buck. And your dad replied, leave me alone. I want to keep hunting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah. is, that is, man, I remember memories like that, you know, as a kid of like, you know, you're done or ready to go, or you shot one and let's go, you know? And it's like, dad's like, nah, I still have a tag too. You know, I want to kill one, but so. Right. Cause we don't know. Cause that's normally what we do. We don't never mess with anybody else. We wait until a certain time. We always got a time that we're going to, you know, we're in the morning. We'll make to 11, 12 o'clock, whatever to meet up. And if somebody kills something, we'll get out or we're always waiting to dark in the evening before we don't, we don't mess with anybody else. Cause we don't do it. And you can, you know, my, my wife, we killed three one day because of that exact thing. We didn't want to, I don't mess with her and she don't mess with me. If not, I, we would only kill one, you know, so, so we just, you, you gotta, you gotta make that, you gotta make that switch too. You know, is is if you got, if you're hunting with other people, you know, give them their time too, cause you don't know what can happen. Cause it only takes a few seconds, you know, for a, for a hot doe to come by or whatever. And then the buck be standing there and you're not even heard him come up. So. But we killed three within two hours. Me and my wife did one time. It's like we'd have come down there like she shot the first one. If I'd come down there, she shot a six point. Then I wouldn't have killed a doe and a, and a nice eight point. So you just there's there's things in your mind that that you've got to make your mind up how you want to do it. It'll work out better. Like I shot a three point one time with a bow, and then fifteen minutes later there was a six point and two big bucks sparring out there in front of me at twenty five thirty yards, and here I already shot a three point. So that was a hard lesson there is like, mm. you know, I should have not shot for free points. I'm looking for a mature buck. So, so and there's a bunch of stories like that, that, that I haven't, that I can talk about and stuff like that. that if you would have done something different, you know, there's some, there's some strategies or talks about like where I work at, they'll think, you know, take two and think it through or something like that. Think about what you want to do and how you want to do it and go by that. And if, cause if you alter, like if you shoot the first deer or, or if you don't wait or if you don't, Stay to the last, you know, last legal limit of time or whatever, because it just can happen at any time. So, and mixing it up, like we hunt like middle of the day sometimes after specific weather stuff, and just so there's there's certain things you got to make your change in your mind to do to do that to make it happen. 
Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. Their gear is made by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen. Archery openers are just around the corner, and Tacticam just released several new products to help you share your hunt and take your scouting to the next level. Topping the list is their 6.0 point-of-view camera, providing 4K footage in a user-friendly, waterproof package. They've also just released the new Solo Extreme, giving you HD footage, 3 to 8x zoom, and one-touch operation that you've come to expect from your Tacticam point-of-view camera. Tacticam's lineup of cameras is supported by the best mounts and adapters on the market. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount as well as their bendy clamp mount to make sure my cameras don't miss any of the action. And last but not least, they just launched the Reveal X Pro. With no visible flash, built-in LCD screen, and built-in GPS tracking, the Reveal X Pro will help you take your scouting to the next level. You can learn more about these and Tacticam's entire line of products at tacticam.com or revealcellcam.com. This episode is also brought to you by Deer Lab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. Deer Lab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target. And you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can get a free 30-day trial, and then when you're ready to buy, use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, for 20% off of any plan. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk now about that sign piece, right? Because that, that's all the rage these days. Guys are talking about the hottest sign, you know, scouting your way in, finding the hottest sign, setting up on that. Um, and, yeah, it, but- and it can work. And, you know, hunting in Wisconsin, man, it, it absolutely can work for you. Um, it's also yeah. very different from how I hunted in Alabama when I was a kid and, and I've seen, like you said, you know, the guys that go in and, and kill big deer, a lot of times are not set up over the freshest, hottest sign. They're in a, in a specific area for a reason. What kind mm-hmm. of, what kind of things are telling you that an area is a good spot to set up? If you know, you're not keying in on big rubs, you're not keying in on big scrapes, you're not keying in on fresh, hot sign. So once I learned that I wanted to hunt big bucks, you know, you got certain, you know, certain phases, you know, you got early season, but here we've only got, it's a cement man there. We start out with they, their rut starts around the 13th of November and it opens October 1st. So you got early season for a little while. So early season strategies is trying to find a specific buck or a bachelor group of bucks close to a feeding area or something like that and concentrate on them. Or you can try to find an isolated buck on his own but you do i usually do that postseason looking for boat beds and stuff like that but once that rut kicks in what i want to know is what the doe groups is that and that's knowing that's knowing by scouting you know postseason wherever where all your food sources at you know red oaks white oaks browns you know thinnings and stuff like that because because that can change a little bit so when the rut comes i'm like, i want to know where the doe groups are and i want to know that uh, edges and the funnels and the creek cross and stuff like that that a buck or more than one buck but during the rut I'm mainly wanting to hunt an area where I have a chance of killing more than one big buck Well, they're coming through checking doe groups so that that is what I'm saying on more than actually hunting hot sign because by then the pressure like the public land the pressure's already been put on so most of that hot sign is nocturnal sign so mm. I'm not worried about that I'm trying to figure out how they're going to go check them doe groups yeah, that, that's really good. And that, and that brings up another thing that you mentioned in the book. You and your family kind of decided, like, hey, we, we've we got these distinct 
rutting periods in the state of Alabama. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that one of the things that makes hunting in the South more difficult, I feel like, you know, I've hunted both places, but more difficult than hunting some other places, like maybe in the Midwest, is the fact that you just don't have that, you know, this two weeks is when the rut is kicking and you need to Uh be in the woods, right? It can, it can happen. I mean, you can sit in the woods and see nothing for a week and a half, or you can sit there and you can have, you know, nonstop action for a week and a half. It just depends on where you're at. But when, uh, most of, what's that? Yeah, uh, and most of the time I rut, like, like you say, is the, the initial rut is like a lull to me. The older does come in heat and they already know where the big buck's at or the big bucks already know where they're at and they're locked down and they're beating the old doe. You don't see hardly any activity. So later on, when the younger does start coming in, that's when we see the most actual like rutting activity. But the initial rut, it's, it's not on our public land. It's very not not been visible at all. You don't hardly see a bunch of crazy chasing and grunting all the time like you do up north and stuff. So yep, that's right, that's right. And but but one advantage that that you do have in Alabama is distinct rutting periods. And you uh-huh. guys decided, hey, we're gonna we're gonna follow this around, which I think is a really uh-huh. good idea. If you live in a state like Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, a lot of those mm-hmm. states have different windows for the rut that are that vary quite a bit. They vary so much that you can take a trip one week, take a couple weeks off, and then take another trip a couple weeks later and still hunt the rut in another place. So tell me about how y'all came to that decision and you know, maybe what are some of your tactics for hunting, you know, during the rut in what maybe kind of an unconventional way, because you can't really rely on, you know, showing up there and, you know, the rut being in full steam ahead, like it would be in maybe Illinois or Missouri. Uh, that, that's a timing thing that you like, you just learn over time, but yeah, each manager there is, is different. So, so that black warrior or, or bank in national forest, wherever it's rut starts around the 13th of November and it'll carry into, it'll carry into the middle of December. Just, it starts out earlier in the north part of it, and then the southern part of it's a little bit later. So, and then you can go to other managed areas and, and chase it all the way through the end of well, end of season, say February 10th. So, in different places, and some of them even in the northern part of Alabama, they just got a different rut from the different type of deer that was stocked over the years. So, so once we figured out that we were going to do more mature buck hunting, we concentrate on the bigger area, which is on Black Warrior first, because it starts out earlier, and then we move, say, Oak Mogi, then maybe Sam Burphy later, because it's the middle of December, and then go to some other ones that start out in January, and then into February, so you can, if you got enough tags, but, you know, most of the time, you know, I'm getting close to tagged out or tagged out by the time Oak Mogi's over with, or something like that, but still have a, another area that's up north, Freedom Hills, is now it's close, it's in that CWZ zone now, so they've changed their hunting stuff up a little bit but still it's a good area to go hunting for some you know i got some unique bigger deer there too and then so but you can go anywhere and then there's a there's a favorite place down south that a lot of people come out of florida and go and they hunt in february so but you can you can plan a trip like we were done and hunting in midwest whatever you can plan a trip and come to alabama from christmas on and just have a blast you know and see a bunch of deer and a bunch of chasing and stuff down south and and some of them piney areas so it's it's pretty unique so Yep. I, 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 I went to Iowa, say I went to Iowa last year, so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't have a problem with anybody coming from Iowa or whatever after y'all done. Come on down here and try some of this big woods hunting or some of this thick stuff, cutovers or whatever, whatever you want to do, come down and try it. Yep. I, uh, I actually did an episode uh, on my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, uh, where I talked with Parker McDonald about 
getting folks to come down for the late Southern rut because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at my family's place, that last or that first 10 days of February is really go time. Like that's when you want to be in the woods. And that February 4th and February 5th, my dad, and even I think 6th as well, my dad and I have killed several bucks on those dates. It's just that those uh-huh. seem to be the days that you find bucks up on their feet looking. Um, not necessarily with a doe, but just out looking. And uh, yeah, man, I, I would, I'd advise people that's a, that's a nice break. And if you're coming from a place like Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, you know, something like that. It's a nice break in the weather too. Cause I mean, it can be, in the, it can be in the sixties in February. Oh yeah. Yeah. It can be, or it can be in the twenties. That's right. <laughs> so, so. Could, could go either way. Yeah. It could go either way, but, um, it won't be, below, it won't be below zero. I can about guarantee you that. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right, man. So tell, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, with this book, one of the things you mentioned is kind of changing deer populations in Alabama and early on, populations were low. Uh, then, you know, I remember the days you mentioned here when in Alabama, we could kill two deer a day, only one of which may be an antlered buck, which that's, you put the pieces together. That's a lot of deer you can kill in a year, uh, to kind of where they are now with the tag system. So how, how have you seen things change, uh, over the years? Oh, yeah. Just like the history of it, you know, because of the depression and stuff like that, everything was pretty much wiped out. In Alabama, I can remember my grandpa and them talking like, if it, come, if it left a track across my grandpa's 40 acres, and that by the next evening it was going to be suffering. It didn't matter what it was because everybody just, things were tough and they could eat whatever they could eat. So after that, they started doing some stocking. There was some stocking done before that in like National Forest whenever they were established. But after that, they started doing some stocking over the state and uh, from different areas of the country. And the population started getting pretty good. So whenever we first started hunting, there wasn't hardly any doe hunting. The only doe hunting you could do was with a muzzleloader, and it was old-style muzzleloaders. And then it started picking up pretty good. Where they, and, but at the end, there was like a buck a day. You could kill a buck a day for the whole season. Then it started around October 15th till uh, January 31st. But there was very few doe days. And so the population pretty much started exploding. And once they established the doe hunt, say in the 80s, Maybe late mid eighties, they 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 would start drawing for does. Like and on your private land, you could you you could control that a doe a day for the whole season, then a buck a day for the whole. So you could kill a two a day for the whole season in a lot of places. And then the I say maybe the nineties or something like that, they started talking about they done some surveys about what you actually wanted to hunt in Alabama. If you wanted to kill deer, you wanted to kill big deer. So the mindset kind of changed. I think Texas was one of States was in the forefront of doing buck management and stuff like that. So people decided they want to kill a little bit bigger there, and then they come along with a tag system that, that knocked it down to three bucks. You know, that helped to an extent. But I think a lot of the things that help the deer now is, is from TV and from podcasts and all that. People are seeing what they can kill, so they're starting on their own and started, you know, passing up stuff, and your clubs have already established, you know, what they want you to shoot, you know, like – four and a half or older or they got antler restrictions you know beam length or they got or you got to meet two or three factors before you can shoot a buck stuff like that but my biggest thing is i think people are just starting to pass up younger bucks so you know over the years i remember i I shoot anything because we didn't see that many and then but now we've started passing up everything unless we think it's three and a half and older so that that mindset has helped to help the buck population or the the quality of bucks you know, get better in Alabama. We've always had some good deer, and you know, it just ain't publicized like the Midwest and stuff like that. So but we've had 
I think the biggest deer in Alabama was around 280 inches or something like that that was killed. So, and that was back in the 60s or 50s or maybe in the 40s. There wasn't big one from the 40s that was killed. But, so we have the genes in places that kill some big ones, and people are, like I say, people are starting to pass younger bucks and then uh, being more selective. And uh, the weather is, and the several factors have uh, created some big ones over the last few years. So. But yeah, it's a, it's a unique time right now. So it's, it's a, actually a better time. So, so we enjoy it. So, and we uh, we try to promote it and try to get everybody else that can enjoy it and you know, get some kids out and some older folks. We got a they got a program in Alabama with a, their adult mentoring program. The state does where they'll get some older people that have never hunted involved in it. So you can do stuff like that. So it's it's a unique time and and a, and a good time to be hunting right now. So bad thing is the CWD has crept into the corner up there a little bit. I think I had two cases confirmed last year. So, mm. so they're starting to kind of manage that a little bit. So, but, uh, but, you know, it's been in the, I think it's been in Wyoming and Wisconsin then for what, since the late 60s or something like that. It's just slowly crept down this way. So, yeah, there, there are spots in Wisconsin where, you know, over 50% of the buck harvest that was tested was, was CWD positive. So it, you know, I commend Alabama for trying to get on it and, and, and handle it quickly rather than, uh, I don't want to say stick their head in the sand, but, but Wisconsin's known about it for a long time. And they, they, there's, there's probably a little bit more that could be done. I'll just leave it at that. But man, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, this coming year, you, you mentioned off air, um, that you think this coming year could be a really, really good year when it comes to hunting, especially for the quality of bucks. And then you just mentioned, you know, this, this right now is is one of the best times to hunt in Alabama. The hunting has just gotten better and better over the last fifteen years or so. Tell me yeah, about a, tell me about why you that? think it's going to be a good year and and kind of what you're anticipating. Yeah, I'm I'm anticipating it to be good and maybe great and might be one of the best years. And, and the biggest thing is the weather over the last four or five years. I think this will be the fifth year. As the winter has been pretty mild and and we've had. You know, early springs, everything greened up quick, and the acorn crops, all that's been good every year, which that don't really do anything but help them get through the winter. But but the biggest thing is the, is the winter's been mild, the springs are being wet and, you know, and milder temperatures, and everything's greened up quick, so the bucks and, and even the does and stuff have built their bodies back up quick and kept them maintained within good shape, and the racks is getting bigger, and then people are passing. So this will be the fifth year, and uh, – and that, that means they have not had to recover their bodies at all in any of these winters. As I'm expecting some whoppers to be killed. It could be, you know, the acorn crop last year was crazy. But this year so far, the report is it's not that many. So they'll have to, on the public land where you can't feed and stuff, you'll have to, they'll have to walk around more, browse around more and they'll, to look for stuff like that. So they could be more visible and we could have some whoppers killed. But I just mean, you know, that's what I'm thinking, you know, but most people don't want to hear that because they don't want it advertised, but it could be one of the, one of the best years throughout the state, I think. So as far as numbers of bigger bucks. So, yeah. And those, man, those, those heavy mast years where there's a lot of acorns on the ground that those can be really, really tough. I remember <laughs> hunting a club down in Thomasville and we, we planted a ton of fields and, and a lot of the guys in the club were, were, were food plot hunters. You know, that was kind of our afternoon mm-hmm. thing. You know, you go out in the morning, sit in the timber, then for the afternoon, pretty much everybody's jumping in a shooting house looking over a food plot. And mm-hmm. those years that we had acorns, man, it was, I mean, it, it'd be December before we'd kill one in the food plots. 
Yeah, last year that a deer, a buck could get up last year, and if he's laid up, and it was still green, it stayed green. Like when I killed that big deer in November, it was still so crazy green you couldn't see fifty yards in most places. So they all they could lay on a green patch of stuff and browse around a little bit and get up, walk ten foot, and eat five gallons of acres and lay back down and, and pop them plants up and chew their cud all day. They didn't have to move around in the daylight, so. So this year it's looking like there's not going to be as many acorns, so they they might have to move around more. And uh, that's one kind of thing I think about. I don't hardly ever hunt any food plots, but like a big deer I killed, I, I was expecting somebody to send me a camera of it or a picture of him, and then nobody had a picture of him. So I don't believe he ever went to a food plot because they had they've had everything they needed without going to food plots over the last four or five years. So man, so you you haven't had anybody send you a picture of that deer? Nope. No so kidding. Uh, and that's kind of unusual, I, but you know, I had pictures of him for the last three years, but it was only in a, just a unique area. I, I think he had everything he needed, and there was a couple of doe groups right there, and within a quarter mile, and he was far enough away from the roads and stuff that he didn't have to go to the food plot, and he didn't. You know, most of the people that put cameras out are you know are using food plots as an area to start with, so I don't think he went to one. He would have to travel about a mile from one. Mark he'll have to go to it, which wouldn't be a big deal, but I don't think he needed to. He needed all the doe groups was around, like I say, they didn't have to they didn't have to use a food plot much. So and most of your mature bucks on public land know that that's where all the pressure's at. They can smell, they can walk within a half a mile of a food plot downwind and smell who all's been there and stuff. Oh, so, yeah. but, but that's 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 my thoughts on that. So I just I just nobody like I said, nobody sent a picture of him, so he was he was staying in a unique spot and there's places you know, even throughout the country, you find the right spot. There's places, there's little holes, little niches and stuff like that where a big buck can get and have everything he needs and just make his nighttime, you know, travels to the doe and that's it, you know. Or they might go to him for, for all we know. But so there's, that's why I think some of them get big and you just don't never, we've had, like one time we had a deer that was, we know he was seven and a half years old and he just disappeared. We never could, we never could see him hunting, but we get through them every year, but. They just, they're just a whole different breed, and that's part of the thing about the book and part of my strategy now is to change that mindset of not, not hunting where you see a bunch of deer at, hunting the unique places where a big buck has you know, established itself. So. Yeah, so one of the you, – you kind of kicked the book off with the story of, of, of your record buck, and, and, I mean, you call him the bench buck, right? So right. he was in a, in a pretty unique area where there was a, mm-hmm. there was a bench – that had some blowdowns on it, and there was a creek crossing, and you had set up a camera on that creek crossing. Um, I'm curious what sparked your your mind because I'm just thinking about growing up hunting down in uh, down in Thomasville, Alabama, you know, Clark and Wilcox County area. Um, man, creek crossings were all over the place, and they all had a bunch of deer tracks on them. So, what made this creek crossing special? Because it seems like they're all over the place in that landscape. In places they are, you just, I look for the big tracks, the bigger tracks. Most of the time are not going to be where all the bunch of tracks are, but I'll go around, like say post season, I'll keep cameras with me and I'll go looking for creek crossings and drainage crossings or whatever. Then I, once I find a creek crossing, then I look at either a topo or I just do it by foot looking and finding edges or unique funnels, bluff gaps, you know, shelves, benches, you know, uh, blow down areas, different timber changes where I think a buck or whatever would go to to travel that. So I put the camera, most of the time I don't put the camera right exactly on the creek crossing. It's above somewhere where I could actually think I could hunt because where them hills and stuff are, it's hard to hunt creek crossings in the morning. So I stay above them. And uh, 
So I just look for the edges or the unique funnels or a couple of funnels, two or three things that try to that would push a buck or a deer to go by a camera to give me an idea. And then most of the time it's got something to do with a creek crossing and some kind of timber change or a shelf or a, a bluff gap, which is a place where deer can go up and down from bluff to change, make level changes where that's, that's kind of secluded. So it, it just takes a lot of walking to do that. But the big track is, is what I'm mainly looking for associated with a creek crossing. Then I'll start making a plan from that. So, yeah. And so two more pieces that kind of help you put it together. So you had pictures of this deer, you walked mm-hmm. this bench out that he, that he had been using and there were some blowdowns and you you kind of made the assumption that he was bedding in some of those blowdowns where did you find yeah. beds in those or were you just like, Hey, that's a great spot to bed. I'm going to leave that alone and just assume he's doing it. I knew that some blowdowns, the blowdowns were actually a little bit higher up, but I knew that that was the primary. And whenever I first established the camera there uh, a couple of years ago, I was, I got a picture of him at a certain time, you know, a certain week, you know, in the daylight and the way he was doing it. So, and there was a couple at nighttime before that, but the daylight picture is what I was actually looking for. And it just showed me that he was, he was leaving or going to that bed there in the daylight, just a couple of days in November. And that kind of helped me make a plan of when I was going to hunt this spot. So, but I knew, I knew pretty much where he was, you know, bedding at by the, by the camera pictures over the years. Yeah. Did you, did you know what that deer was doing after he crossed the creek? Uh, not really. Not I really knew. Okay. There, there, he had, he had multiple options. I can't really talk about all that. I get talking too much and I won't be able to impart next week. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, once he went to a certain point, he could, he had options. But I don't know if he ever did it like that. Cause I never had any pictures. Nobody, nobody sent any pictures to me, but it just, he was just, he had options once he done that. So, yeah. but yeah, no, that's just real. That's really good. I, I, I'm really, you know, part of what I'm intrigued by is you had a lot of history with this deer, which doesn't always happen on public land. Right. Uh, you had only a handful of pieces. I mean, you had where you suspected he was bedding, you had the creek crossing, and you had the bench that he was kind of using back and forth. But, but you right. didn't have like the hey, here's definitely here's the food plot he's ending up in, or the ag field he's ending up in, or the exact right. bed where he's bedding. And right. you were still able to put a game plan together and get this deer on the ground. Um, one, one more piece of your, of your hunting strategy that you mentioned in the book um, that I want, I'm wondering if you can go into it just a little bit is, you know, today a lot of folks are always saying, hey, first sit, best sit. First time in, your best time in, uh, hunt the spot, consider it burned after that, then pull out. You don't do that. Uh, no. you, 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 well, more I, 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 typically, yeah, right, typically. Yeah. So tell, tell me about your thought process on that. And, and is it, what would you hunt differently if you were in, uh, you know, some of these other places where people are saying first sit, best sit, or do you think that they could learn to maybe, you know, throw a couple more sits at a spot? Yeah. Now early season, like this book, which wasn't specifically early, early season. I, the mindset of like the first set is best set is true. I, I try to target, you know, isolated food sources or isolated bucks and I'll, I'll jump around. I only hunt them one or two times and I'm moving on to something else. But my, but once I kind of get an area, kind of figured out where the doe groups is at. And the, the, when the, once the pre-run stuff starts, the areas that I'll concentrate on then I'll hunt them. I, I, I have hunted them a week because, 
because of the cameras and, and the, the sign, the track sign and stuff like that over there is a tell you that certain times of the year during the rut or the pre-rut, that there's a big, you'll have a chance. I've had before on, say, a creek crossing, I've had a camera above it. I've had, say, four or five bucks over 120 across that creek crossing going to check doe groups during a two-week period or whatever. So, well, you got to also remember that the public land we hunt, most of your people are going to be gun hunting. There's only specific gun hunting days, you know, during these time frames that there are any, then you're going to have to bow hunt. So you, you, you got to spend more than one time to me to hunt the areas I'm hunting in the rut. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm going to put myself in a higher odds of killing a mature buck. So the areas I've figured out to hunt is where more than one buck, big buck to come through there. So I'm playing a higher odds game. So I'll sit it more than once. So it might take a, it might take a few days for a buck to make his leap to these these uh, lower pressure areas or lower deer density areas. They make they make bigger loops. Yeah, and that that's something that I've heard guys say who hunt like the big woods in northern Wisconsin. Uh, guys who are hunting up in the northeast in some of the big woods settings, and it seems to hold true for down south as well uh, that these deer appear to be on on loops. You get them every handful of days. Have right. you noticed any consistency? As like a you know man. Or, this buck it's every four days or or is it just kind of buck to buck different personalities yeah it's buck buck different personality i i kind of just i you know a lot of people get into the moon phase and all that stuff but i just look for specific days i'll, I'll like if i'm hunting you know i write that which i write down everything in my, my journal book anyway so i keep up with all the days and tie it in with trail cam pictures and stuff like that and write that stuff down so to me, it's more about specific days, and I, you've only got limited days to hunt anyway. And if I'm off, you know, it's another thing because you hear all these podcasts about moon phase and all that stuff. Well, when I, if you're working, man, like I'm working twelve hours swing shift, so I'm off, and that during that week time, whatever, I'm hunting regardless. I don't care if the moon's underfoot, overfoot, sideways, black, whatever. I got to hunt because I've only got so many hunting days, so I might mix it up on the own how long I hunt, which if my wife's not hunting with me, I'll hunt all day, but she's with me when she's picking out what she wants to hunt even in the morning. So and most times in the rut, it's going to be morning. So, but that's, I mean, to me, you got, if you're only got so many days off to hunt, you better be hunting. Yeah, man. Your, uh, your wife told me at, at the deer expo, she said, she said that you like to hunt all day. She's like, I told him I can't do that anymore. We got some dogs now that we have to take care of. So, but yeah, used to years ago when she first started hunting, I put her in a lock on an hour before daylight, and not go get her until dark. You know, we just, we just, that's just to me. You know, you've only got so many days to hunt, and you better be spending them. You know, I don't care if it's raining or what. You know, I'm scared of lightning, but I'm not gonna mess around lightning. But, but rain and, and wind, I, I really love rainy wind. The more wind, the better to me on big bucks. I seem like I see more big bucks in the wind, but. Like I say, if I'm off and it's during that time frame, you know, the the rut, I got to be hunting or pre-rut, whatever. So, and then once we start, you know, we're moving to different, different managed areas, chasing that rut. We're, we're going to hunt regardless. So yep. there's no, there's no other factor that's going to make me hunt. You know, it's got anything to do with any kind of, you know, trail, uh, collar surveys or wind thing or moon things or whatever. I'm, I'm going to be hunting. So. Yeah, man. You know, I, I find a lot of that stuff intriguing. I really do. I love hearing about the the GPS studies. I love hearing about, you know, what trail camera studies have found and shown. Uh, mm-hmm. Man, at the end of the day, though, I'm just like, I, I can't bring myself to, to hunt based on that. Like, I've got limited time, and the time that I do have where my wife says, 
you know, she gives me the nod, like, Hey, get out there. And yeah. I, man, I'm going to hunt it. You know, I don't care or, if the moon is overhead, underfoot, sideways, uh, yeah. nothing. Well, right. And there's a bunch of other factors, you know, especially on public land, there's a bunch of other factors that can make a deer move. You know, you got people, you got dogs, you got coyotes, you got, you know, a, a, a crazy doe in heat that's different or just different personality boats. There's a lot of other factors that don't have anything to do with, with moon phases or, or whatever. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, the only other factor that you can, that make you uh, benefit you is you yourself mindset and get out there and do it, you know, hunt. So, you know, don't worry about another factor to help you do it. You know, you more, I'm more worried about me making myself, you yeah. know, making sure I'm hunting, making sure my equipment, you know, I'm familiar with my equipment and, you know, capable of shooting the way I want to shoot and stuff like that. And then, and then just getting in the tree, you know, so. man, good stuff, man. So, all right. So the book is called, uh, Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Lands by Michael Perry. Man, I'm curious if you had to take this book and say there's one part of it that you are most proud of and you're most excited for people to read, what part is that? <laughs> That's tough. I, I can't pick out one part because it's got different stories. It's got stories with Kathy and stories with my dad that's passed away now and, and stories with my brother, which he's in the Army and in Georgia. So, so But I, I can't pick out a specific book. Or part of the book, I just, I, you know, I think I, I enjoyed the whole thing. It took me a while to do it. So, you know, there's there's a part in there that we, that we talk about that not all mature bucks have big racks, cause, you know, because I've killed in you know, Alabama's one of the states, you know, as buck gets five or six years old, he might not have a 100 inch rack, but he's a big old tanky looking deer. So I'm, I'm happy to shoot bucks like that. So there's, there's a, you know, there's a variety of different strategies in the book and, you know, some trail camera stuff, scouting stuff. And, and specific stories about specific deer. So, but I'm, I'm basically just proud of the whole book. So hopefully everybody will enjoy it and give me some feedback. So. Fantastic. And where can folks find the book and where can they get a hold of you if they want to ask you a question or uh, try to keep up with everything that you're doing? Yeah, right now the book is on Amazon, so you can get on Amazon and find it. So that'll, that's basically, you know, I've got a, one little store here and where I live that's got it and I have some myself, but you can, you can hit me up with a message on Facebook or Instagram, and I'll answer any kind of questions. I try to answer questions. I've called a bunch of people that send me their numbers, so I like talking. I don't have a problem with talking with anybody. You can just send me a message. If you want me to send you a book or something, you can PM me or something like that, and I can I can do that. So, so But, yeah, just hit me up on Facebook or uh, uh, Instagram, and we've got a little YouTube channel. That's Wild Hunting where we're trying to do some stuff. We're getting a little slow right now. It's getting towards season, so. We're going to try to have some more stuff out. I'm going to have, we're having, planning on having a little get together here in a week or so in, in where I live, the home, my hometown, but I don't know if this podcast will be out before then. But we're having a little thing October 9th at uh, uh, Parker's Wildlife and Tax Dermot Place. So get together a book signing and a little food and stuff. So. Oh, excellent. I'll make sure to, I'll make sure to launch the, I'll, I'll launch this one this coming Thursday then. Okay. That well, way we can get it out as soon as possible. So that that's October 9th. October 9th at, at 5 o'clock at uh, Tank, our Parker's Wildlife and Tank Dermot Shop in Coleman. It'll be on the south side of 31. So. All right. Well, I'll so put we'll this have one up for you. Right, I appreciate that. So, well, man, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck with this. Looking forward to seeing what all is coming out of uh, the That's Wild Hunting YouTube channel this fall. And uh, good luck to you, man. Hey, have you, uh, have you kept a camera in the spot where you killed this buck? Where you killed the big one? Did you keep a camera in there? I actually pulled that camera because it was old, and I, I just put it back uh, two weeks ago. 
Oh man. So, okay. So, uh, but uh, you know, uh, but uh, I, I got some deer on camera, but, but I'm not gonna get in that too much. So. Yep. I don't have one on camera that's as big as that one, but you know, there's I got some unique ones and stuff like that. that I don't enjoy getting after. So. Good deal, man. Well, good luck this season. Thanks for coming on the show again, and uh, yeah, look forward to the next time we talk. Well, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate you having me on. And everybody have fun and get after it. And that is it for this week, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Thank you to all of our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Deer Lab. Thanks to Michael Perry for coming on. Appreciate all the knowledge that he is dropping. You can go find his book over on Amazon. Again, that's Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Lands. It is worth your time. If you're looking for more great whitetail content, head over to thesportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other show, The Wisconsin Sportsman, and a whole bunch of other relevant outdoor content.